Well, today we're going to wrap up um, Genesis 11. Usually in a sermon, we'll zoom in on a particular passage. Uh, every once in a while, we'll zoom out and look at different themes in Scripture. Today, you're getting the combo meal pack. Um, we're going to zoom over Genesis 1 through 11, and then we're going to focus in at the end of chapter 11. Um, here's an image that helps me. We have a beautiful red pale hawk behind our condo, and we're sitting on the deck. It flies over this row of trees, and it kind of surveys all the trees, but it has a nest in one tree, so it settles down there. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to survey the first 11 chapters and then settle down at the end there. I'm going to read Genesis 1-1 for us. Uh, When I'm done, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and I want you all to say, uh, thanks be to God. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's help. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. I recently went with Don and David uh, to a pastor's event at Care Women's Center. And on the way in, there was a stack of, hello, my name is, stickers. You know, the sticker I'm talking about with the red border around it. And we wrote our names on that. And we went into a room of strangers and we could identify one another by those stickers. The book of Genesis is God's, hello, my name is, sticker. It's split up into two parts. The first part, 1 through 11, is God and the world. And then 12 through 50, as we're going to pick up in the fall, is God and his covenant people through Abraham. Today, we're going to make several introductions. We're going to meet God. We're going to meet humanity. That sounds weird. We'll get to it in a bit. Meet God, meet humanity. And then we're going to introduce humanity to God. And the big idea of Genesis 1 through 11 is this. The joyful creator God introduces himself as the judge and savior of humanity. Let me read that again. The joyful creator God introduces himself as the judge and savior of humanity. Let's get into it. Let's meet God. First impressions are important. They're important in business. They're important for being a mature adult. That's why we teach our kids from a young age, give a firm handshake and look people in their eye and say, hi, my name is fill in the blank. They're so important that many of us, even as adults, we have anxiety about first impressions. I had anxiety going to that care women's center because it's hard for me to introduce myself to 20 people I don't know. But why are first impressions so important? It's because first impressions shape our relationships. First impressions shape our relationships. We make decisions based on them. So we think, do I want to hang out with that person again? Or is that person safe? Or will they be a friend? We base all those answers to our first impressions. Well, we as humans were made to know and enjoy God. A.W. Tozer puts it like this. We could pull that up. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The only problem with us is that we have distorted first impressions of God. 
Sadly, what comes into our minds when we think about God has been twisted by our fallen experience. Here's, here's a few examples. Um, I know some of you grew up in a more fundamentalist church where there are some good things honoring God's authority and his word, but there's also some legalism. And it starts to creep in your mind that God only loves me if I do good. That distorts your impression of God. Maybe some of you grew up with an understanding of God that he was a genie in the bottle. You only cried out to him in prayer when you wanted or needed something. Maybe some of you had a first impression of God that he was an oppressive rule giver. Maybe you still carry that first impression of God with you and you have a bad opinion of him and you're angry at God even in your seat this morning. Well, God is speaking to you through the book of Genesis today and he says, get to know me on my own terms. Besides, I want us to think we often get wrong first impressions. Think of one of your best friends. Just pull them up in your head. And if you can, Think about your first impression of your best friend. It was probably far different than the person you know today. That's because over time, you got to realize who your friend truly is, and you grew to love them. And so God is going to give us a truer understanding of him. Uh, I just want to put a couple uh, discussion questions up here for you as you gather in your missional communities. You could answer these out loud when you gather this week, but what was your first impression of God? Or maybe your earliest memory of God? And why? Second, has Genesis changed or reshaped your impression of God? If so, how? So explore those questions in your groups. But God... He does something about our misunderstanding of him. He doesn't let us stay in our wrong impressions of him. And he does this for our joy and for his own glory. In the first two chapters of Genesis, God does away with all these false understandings. In Genesis 1.1, it's packed with who God is. It reads, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From this one verse, we know that God is eternal. In the beginning, he's there pre-existent, Father, Son, and Spirit, enjoying one another. This verse teaches us that he's the creator. He created all things, heaven and earth and everything in it. And God is the rightful king. Because he made everything, he owns everything. So Genesis 1-1 already off the bat tells us that he's a king, a creator, and he's eternal. But as we look in the first two chapters of Genesis, we learn another very important lesson. That God is happy. God is joyful. He is the king of joy and parties and pleasure. And this might sound a little weird to you, especially if you've come from more of a fundamentalist or legalistic background, that God is happy. But let me point out a few places in Genesis 1 and 2 that, that proves this. First, God is blessed and he's a blesser. Blessed means happy. God is happy and he makes other people happy. When he brings Adam and Eve to them, he doesn't curse them. He doesn't immediately give them a rule, but he blesses them. If we go on to see in Genesis 2, God actually plants a gardener. Oh, a gardener. <laughs> well, he plants a garden and then he puts a gardener in there. God is the original gardener and he plants this garden and he names it Eden. 
which most people think means pleasant. He plants this beautiful garden called Pleasant. And in chapter 2, verse 9, he says he put trees in that garden that were pleasant to, pleasant to the sight and good for food. Uh, God didn't have to make food like this. I remember, I, I wonder if you've seen the Matrix, like the stodgy oatmeal they eat there. Like God could have made food just like that in the Matrix. But he's given us blueberries and maple syrup and crunchy things and all these delightful flavors. God is the king of joy. I wonder what it would look like for us to really believe that and live in relationship with this king of joy. All throughout the New Testament, it says, give thanks, be abounding in thanksgiving. I wonder if you see God as a generous and bountiful creator and giver. We often think that God is holding out on us, that he's keeping back good things from us. If you're in that place this morning, that you're bitter, that God is holding back so many good things from you, I want to encourage this practice for you. And we're going to, we're going to return to this in the next mini-series. But I want you to write a gratitude list. I know Pastor David has talked about this in the past. I think this is one of the most enriching things you could do for your soul, a gratitude list. Sit down sometime this week and write out, just list out as many as you can things that you're thankful for. And be specific. You know, don't just say like, uh, let's think of something generic. Like, happiness. I'm thankful for happiness. Say, I'm thankful for nice shoes or blueberries or this person in my life or this experience and list them all out. And then what I want you to do is just read that list out to God. Read it out loud to God in prayer. And I think your heart will start to fill with thanksgiving. And you parents in the room, you can make this a game for the kids. Um, you could say like, if you could write down 20 things or say 20 things you're thankful for, we're all going to get ice cream. I'm not saying you have to do that. Kids, listen to your parents. I didn't promise ice cream. But... That's a possibility. So let's be abounding in thanksgiving to our creator, God, who is the king of joy. So here in the first two chapters of Genesis, God introduces himself to us, but he goes on to introduce humanity to itself. We're going to meet humanity now in chapters 3 through 11. And this seems super weird to us. You might be thinking like, why do I need to learn about humans? I am one. Don't I know everything I needed to know about humanity? Well, not so fast on that. We, know, we need to know about ourselves through God's perspective, God's perspective for two main reasons. First, God is our creator. He knows who we are, and he's given us purpose. So he's the authority on humanity. Secondly, our views of self are often distorted by sin. We don't see ourselves correctly. Earlier I said um, that quote from Tozer, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Well, at the risk of uh, contradicting myself, I'm going to pull up a quote that says kind of the opposite. This is from C.S. Lewis. You could just hear his Britishness, his Englishness coming through this. I read in a periodical the other day, that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. 
So in American English, he's saying, no, the most important thing is not necessarily what we think about God, but what he thinks about us. I'm not here to debate this morning uh, which author is right. I simply want to point out that both theology, what we believe about God, and anthropology, what we believe about humanity, must be shaped by God's word. Theology and anthropology must be shaped by God's word. So God introduces himself to us, and now he introduces us to ourselves. So let's meet humanity. Let's meet ourselves through God's eyes. Well, the human story is a story of sin, rebellion, but it doesn't start there. It starts in a garden with honor, joy, and obedience in God's presence, in God's place. God made Adam and Eve on the sixth day. They were the crown jewel of his creation, the treasure of his creation. Man and woman were made distinctly in God's image, unlike any other creature. And that means that we as humans have a distinct way of knowing God, enjoying him, and showing him off to one another unlike any other creature. And in that garden, Adam and Eve enjoy walking with God, swimming in the rivers, enjoying the pleasant fruits with God. There was no shame in their nakedness. There was no sin, no hateful words or actions. And there was only one rule from God. He said, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As you know, if you're familiar with the Bible's story, The snake, Satan, embodied in this snake, comes and he tempts Adam and Eve to think the unthinkable, that God is stingy. After God, the good father has given them all these things to enjoy and only one no, the snake comes along and says, did God really say you can't eat from all these trees? This is an insane thought from Satan, but the first humans listened to the snake And they ate the forbidden fruit and they passed on their rebellious natures to their children, to us, the human family. And starting in Genesis 3, the human story is pretty ugly. Our family history as humans is pretty ugly. It's filled with rebellion and violence and shame, kind of like our newsreels. Nothing has changed. The three major storylines, this is one easy way to, to remember the big stories in Genesis 3 through 11 is, The three major storylines are a tree, a flood, and a tower. A tree, a flood, and a tower. Those are the headlines of Genesis 3 through 11. And each one of these stories talks about human rebellion against the word of God. And this humbles our modern kind of optimism about human nature. There are many today who have an unrealistic optimism about the goodness of our hearts. You even hear that, like parents talking about children who've done like pretty horrendous things and they're like, they have a heart of gold, you know, or, or people who've done atrocious crimes and they say, you know, at bottom, they're really good people. You've probably heard people say that. But how does that understanding, that modern understanding of humanity explain all the injustices we see in the news and all the brokenness we feel in our relationships? Human nature has fallen since Adam rebelled against God. Every single person, no matter your creed or your ethnicity, is made in the image of God, yes, 
but that image is broken and shattered through sin. God's word on humanity in the New Testament is this, three words, all have sinned. All have sinned. Instead of loving God and neighbor, we hate God and neighbor. We reject God's word. We're lawbreakers. And I wonder, is this how you view yourself, your children, your neighbors, that you're sinful lawbreakers? Uh, we all, I, even me, as I'm preaching this, I buck up against that. Like when, when the word of God says, Elliot, you're a wretched sinner, I want to defend myself. But we all have blind spots in our lives. We all have blind spots in our lives. I remember in Minneapolis, uh, where the family used to live, we were frequenting our go-to Chipotle as a family, Olivia and I and the kids. And as we were eating our burrito bowls, uh, an acquaintance came in from church. It's like someone you met during coffee hour, you kind of remembered their name, but they weren't like a friend. So we were chatting it up, you know, I was trying to remember the name, and we're just talking while we're eating our burrito bowls. And Olivia was like a little bit disengaged, and afterwards she's like, babe, you have a black bean on your tooth. And like, I always get food in my teeth, so like, that wasn't anything shocking. But what happened was like, the film on the outside of the black bean got stuck on one whole tooth, so I looked like Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean. And she was like, babe, you look like a toothless pirate. I was like, oh, rad. Um, but what I, what I did in that moment is I trusted that outward, objective perspective of someone who I trust and love, my wife, Olivia, because she was saying something about me that I didn't see. And so I pulled out my phone and I took down the bean film, if that's a thing. <laughs> but in a much more real and serious way, we all have things in our lives, morally, that other people see that we're blind to. And if I would trust Olivia, who, who I really trust with my life and I love her, if you would trust your spouse or your best friend to point something out in your life, shouldn't we trust our creator God who points out things in our lives and says, that's evil, that's wrong. He loves us, he's a good father. Really the story of rebellion in the garden and the flood in the tower is saying something true about us. I know that doesn't feel good, but it's the loving thing to tell the truth. We have all turned away from our creator God. We have all settled in on team Satan. And we, all of us have sinned and turned from him. How does this shape our lives? Well, I think we should believe God's word about you, whether it's through a sermon like this, whether it's through Bible reading or a trusted friend. And let this be your motivation. When people point out the black uh, bean on your tooth or on your soul, as it were, let this be our disposition and our motivation. You can't find healing until you admit you're sick. You can't find healing until you admit you're sick. Jesus only heals those who know they need him as a doctor. In the Gospels, in Jesus' ministry, he said this, I came for the sick and not the healthy. This is the Eliot paraphrase of that. I came for those who recognize their sin sickness and not those who live in the delusion of health, like the Pharisees. So let's aim to have a humble posture towards God's word when he talks about us and our hearts. Yesterday, 
Uh, Don shared his testimony and he gave an encouragement to us from the word of God from Isaiah 66, verse two. And he read this to us. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit and trembles at my word. So let's be humble, submissive in spirit and tremble at God's word, even when he points out the dark stuff in our hearts. So we've met God. He's the joyful creator. We've met ourselves in a way. We're rebellious image bearers. What happens when a joyful creator and a rebellious creature meet? So let's introduce these two parties together. Humanity is going to meet God. Well, we'd expect a clash, some kind of clash by a, between a good God and a rebellious people. And that's exactly what we get in the book of Genesis. God is the rightful judge of fallen humanity. So when Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, God judges them by casting them out of paradise, out of the garden, and they're doomed to death. When violence increases in the world, God floods this whole thing and wipes out humanity. When Nimrod and his building crew build up the Tower of Babel, God comes down and gives them different languages and spreads them in judgment. And we would expect this. We all, even on a human level, even if you're not a Christian here today, you long for justice. You long for justice for the war crimes in Ukraine, apartment buildings being decimated, civilians. You long for justice when you hear about a murder in Concord and there's no suspect. You long for justice on a personal level when you feel overlooked at work or hurt by the people in your life. And this is all because we're made in the image of God, a just God. So even though it hurts, we can understand that God would judge humanity for their sins. We expect judgment. But judgment is only half of the story in Genesis. In fact, judgment doesn't even take center stage. Soon we're going to meet a, name, meet a man named Abraham. Meet a man named Abraham. We're going to spend the rest of the time with his family. And that's all about God saving a family. So judgment doesn't take center stage in Genesis or even in God's plan. Salvation does. What I want you to see is in Genesis, for every single judgment, there is also a way out for salvation. So we could pull up that slide. For every single judgment, there's also a salvation. Think about it. Adam and Eve sin. There's the judgment. They're kicked out. But God promises them a son who will destroy the snake with a death blow and will make all things right. So judgment, salvation. You think about Genesis 6 through 9. Humanity grows in violence. Humanity gets so violent towards each other that God is grieved in his heart. And so he judges them with a flood. But he saves one man and his family, Noah, through an ark, salvation. Humanity proudly builds a tower for their own name and God scatters them in judgment. But as we're going to see in this final passage in Genesis 11, God calls one family from out of the chaos to be his own people, his treasured possession. So this is where we're going to zoom in, kind of nest in Genesis 11 at the end. So look at Genesis 11:27, and I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter. Genesis 11:27.
Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Ishkah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So remember, Abram, he's from the line of Shem, one of Noah's sons, and this is the line of blessing. The line of Genesis 3.15, where the son of Eve is going to come and make all things right by destroying the snake. So he's from the line of promise, but Abram's life looks anything but promising. Let's consider some details of his life. Where is he from? He's from this place called Ur of Chaldeans. Chaldeans, which is the southern region of Babel or Babylon. So Abram, he's a Babylonian. He's part of this rebellious group of people that tried to build a city against God. Ur was also infamous for worshiping the moon god. So they're worshiping this god of the moon, this false god. And in Joshua 24, it makes this explicit. It says, Abraham and his family were worshiping false gods when God called him. We see a few names here represent these false gods. Even his wife's name, Sarai, is from this language, Akkadian. And her name represents the queen who's the female partner of the moon god. So this whole family's tripping. They're far from God. They're lost. They're worshiping a moon god and his moon wife. You could figure that out. <clears throat> um, they're not the ideal candidates for God's family. They're not the ideal candidates for continuing God's promised line, which comes through children and Sarah, she's far beyond childbearing age, and she's barren. So how does God respond to Abram, this rebel idolater in Babylon? The creator God, the joyful creator God, singles out this one man, Abram, not to curse him, but to bless him. God's heart is filled with grace and love towards Abraham, not based on anything in Abram or his life but based on what's in the heart of God, which is love and grace. You might be thinking, like, this is a long time ago. This is thousands of years ago. What's a moon-worshipping Babylonian old guy have to do with me? Well, Abraham's situation is a lot like ours. We, too, are a part of a people who are rebellious against God and seek to make a name for ourselves with our cities and our ambitions. We don't seek God in worship. We're independent, fiercely independent. We don't depend on God. Uh, even Abram's moon worship, we kind of take part in that. I know some of you are watching Moon Knight from Marvel. You might be tempted to worship the you know, Egyptian moon god. Probably shouldn't do that. Worship the true and living God. But Romans 1 says, we worship created things and not the creator. Humanity, we worship created things, not the creator. We are just like Abraham. If you think about it, when you listen to your neighbor's talk or you turn on the TV, how many times do you hear this? Thank you, universe. 
Or I'm just putting that out to the universe and hoping the universe sends that back to me with, you know, good vibes. What are we even talking about? The universe. We're still like Abram. Maybe not specifically worshiping the moon, but worshiping the universe, the ambiguous universe. Or our own independence to say who we are above God saying who we are. Maybe we worship a spouse or a child or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a job or a school. We worship created things and not the creator. We're just as pagan and lost as Abraham. But just like Abram, God seeks and saves us. If you read through the Gospels, there's different mission statements for Jesus. One of my favorites is Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to earth. The Son of God came to earth, took on flesh like you and me, became a man. To seek and save the lost. Those who know they're lost, like the sinners and tax collectors of his day, and those who who have no idea how far away they are from God, like the Pharisees. They're just blind to it. But Jesus didn't come only to seek the lost, but to save them, to save them from God's judgment and to give them God's salvation. You might be thinking that's not fair. Like, why did God just choose one guy, one man named Abram and his family out of all these Babylonians to be part of his family? Like, what about God's justice? Abram was worshiping a moon god and trying to build this city against God's name, and yet God just blesses him? Well, we find the reason in Romans 4 and 5 why God can bless this idolater. The reason why God blessed the ungodly Abraham is because the godly Jesus died in his place. Romans 4 and 5 make this plain. Abraham was ungodly in and of himself. And Romans 5, 6 puts it this way. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were lost, we weren't looking for God. We were worshiping created things. We were part of a rebellious people. Jesus came for us while we were weak, and he died for the ungodly. And this is the way we get in on God's salvation. Maybe you're reading through a Genesis story. It's like, how do I get in on that promise? How could I get in on that ark? How could I get into this family that is blessed by God? And it's by faith in Jesus, our substitute, who takes God's judgment so he gives us God's salvation. The gospel in Genesis is this. Through the cross, Jesus takes us back into the garden into right relationship with God, peace with him, and restored relationship. We get to enjoy life with the joyful creator in his good gifts and the greatest gift of all, his presence, Father, Son, and Spirit with us and for us. That is the gospel according to Genesis. So I just want to work this in to us, especially as we seek to be on mission here in New Hampshire. Um, it could be really discouraging to be on mission in New Hampshire. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you experience that. In fact, I was talking to one of you, and you and your family went on a college visit to Texas. And the thing that, that blew this family away was there were so many A-frame signs on this secular college campus talking about campus Christian ministries. And there's just like Christians everywhere. 
When you come back home, though, that could be pretty discouraging because you don't really see A-frames for churches or for campus ministries. Now, the South, they have their own problems. They have a lot of beautiful things. You know, I love New England. That's why I live here. But it could be hard to stay on, engage in hopeful mission here in New Hampshire, in the Northeast. But this passage should fuel your hope as you join the mission of God. God, listen to this, God has a missionary heart toward moon worshipers. God has a missionary heart toward moon worshipers or people who are looking towards Reiki for help or people who are blessing the universe or getting involved in ancient Norse paganism or people who are looking to politician and literally worshiping them and putting all their hope in politicians. God sees those people, those idolaters, and he moves towards them in Jesus to seek and save them. So don't lose heart, New Hampshire Christian. Don't go into a holy huddle. Keep making non-Christian friends and trust that you are participating in God's mission, sharing the Jesus who seeks and saves the lost in your town, your workplace, your community here in Concord. So this is the heart of Genesis 1 through 11. The joyful creator God introduces himself as the judge, but even greater, as the savior of humanity. So God has introduced himself to us. Now it's up to you. How will you respond to this joyful creator God? You have two options, faith or unbelief. Abraham, as we'll see in the fall, is the model of the life of faith. Not perfection, but faith. And you've already seen, if you've been going through Genesis with us, you've already seen the devastating effects of unbelief. Cain turned away from God's hand and help. The unrighteous in Noah's day, when Noah was building this ark and saying, a flood is coming, the people who did not believe were destroyed in the flood. Nimrod and his whole crew who is building the Tower of Babel, they were scattered and they did not find refuge in God, the true tower. But God saves and satisfies those who believe in him and believe in his Messiah, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are found I praise you for sending your son and your Holy Spirit after them to save them in their lostness. And I pray for the lost. That it would start to dawn upon their minds that they truly are lost without you, without hope. And all their idols will not satisfy them. Jesus, hound of heaven, would you pursue them, seek them and save them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.